Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to the Mary Rose for a very special edition. Uh, we are effectively holding a wake for His Royal Highness, the Prince Philip, Duke of Edinburgh, who whose funeral took place today at Windsor. And we decided that there's been a lot of coverage, and but we decided that we were going to do something in our own inimitable style. And he was known for being king of banter and good fun. And we thought we'd raise a drink to him, talk about his life, and also have a laugh as well, because we think he would have appreciated that. Uh, but I'm not going to take the credit for this at all, because it's not my idea. Uh, Alina won't be with us today because she's got some family stuff on. She's gutted. She was going to talk all about the Duke's visits to Poland. Uh, but the person behind all of this is Charlie. Hello. Yeah, I thought it would be a nice thing to do. Like you say, I don't. I never got the sense that the Duke of Edinburgh was a solemn or serious type. Uh, I think he would have quite appreciated a bunch of gobshites like us getting together and having a drink in his name. Yeah, most definitely. So how's it going to work tonight? Okay, well, what we're going to do, you know, with Down the Pub, we all contribute in our own little special ways. So I threw it out to our our crazy group and said, you know, would you like to talk about an aspect of the Duke's life? So we're going to take Mm -hmm. bits of his life, bits of his service, bits of his background, bits of his um, his role, public and private. And we're going to talk about them. It's not going to be a voting situation because how do you how do you vote on that? But hopefully, uh, hopefully you'll learn something, have a bit of fun and we'll have a laugh. And we will, of course, because everyone's sitting there now going, are they going to do quotes? Yes, we are going to do some of finest quotes, aren't we? Charlie, where are we going to start tonight? Okay, well, we're going to start at the beginning. Where better place to start? And uh, with the beginning of Prince Philip's life, we're going to go over to Kate. Hello, Kate. Hello. So you've got (laughs) all the juicy details of Philip's youth and family to share with us, haven't you? Yeah, it's quite a, a long and bumpy one, so buckle up. Um, Go for it. <laughs> so it's not Prince Philip, Duke of Edinburgh, but rather Prince Philip of Greece and Denmark, with whom my part of this eulogy is concerned. To understand the man, one must understand from where he has come. Philip's forefathers and childhood have almost become a thing of myth, as though Philip appeared 26 years old just in time for his wedding to Prince Elizabeth. Philip himself said, I don't think anybody thinks I had a father, but he did. King Christian IX of Denmark was Philip's great-grandfather, 
From a comparatively poor family, Christian was unexpectedly made heir to the throne of Denmark for a distant relation. Within a very short space of time, the family had, as one chronicler put it, colonised royal Europe. Christian's daughters married well, and his son, Philip's grandfather, was made King George I of Greece. The young king endeared himself to the Greek people by being friendly and approachable. He and his beautiful Russian wife had eight children, one of which was Andrea, Philip's father. Born in 1882, he was premature and so tiny that he spent his first few days in a cigar box, being fed with a toothpick. He eventually grew into a tall athletic figure, considered the most handsome of the king's sons. Andrea began classes at the military college in Athens when he was 14. Then in 1902, aged 20, he was commissioned as a subaltern in the cavalry. Soon afterwards, he met Princess Alice of Battenberg, the beautiful girl who would later become his wife. Alice's grandfather was Prince Alexander of Hesse, who, thanks to his sister's marriage to the future Tsar of Russia, joined the Imperial Army. He was later banished from Russia after he fell in love with a Polish countess. Their eldest son, Prince Louis of Battenberg, was Philip's maternal grandmother, who determined to, sorry, grandfather, <laughs> who determined to become a sailor set out for England and the Royal Navy, aged just 14. He met and then married Princess Victoria, granddaughter of Queen Victoria. Their marriage produced four children, the eldest a daughter, Alice, Philip's mother. Though a fine, sturdy baby, she was slow to talk and often seemed absent-minded. It was not until she was four that she was pronounced deaf. Her mother forbade her from asking anyone to repeat themselves. Forced to disguise her confusion, she fast became a brilliant lit reader in several languages. This, together with her poison beauty, meant her deafness went largely unnoticed. In 1902, at the coronation of King Edward VII, Alice met Andrea, who she thought was exactly like a Greek god. It was love at first sight. King Edward granted permission, and the following year they became officially engaged. The wedding was a spectacular who's who of European royalty. Their marriage was characterised by the rise and fall of the popularity of the Greek royal family. Nasty rumours, a coup d'etat, removal from, then reinstatement to the army, the Balkan Wars, the assassination of George I of Greece, after which his eldest son Constantine was crowned. Married to Kaiser Wilhelm II's sister, when World War I broke out, he aimed for neutrality. He was banished, along with his eldest son and brothers, including Andrea. Constantine's younger son, Alexander, was made king. <clears throat> Meanwhile, in England, George V decided to remove all traces of Germanic associations and requested all members of the royal family relinquish German names, styles and titles. Alice's father, His Serene Highness Prince Louis of Battenberg, was relegated to the Marquess of Milford Haven and the family name translated to Mount Batten. Just three years later, the untimely death of the new King Alexander of Greece from a monkey bite was followed by the reinstatement of Constantine and his brothers. Andrea, balding and bemonocled, begging for a military command, his pregnant wife in repose on Corfu. Unoccupied during their exile, the family villa was austere, to say the least. No gas, electricity or even running hot water. On June the 9th, 1921, Andrea left Athens with his brother King Constantine and the troops. Headed for Smyrna. The next day, Alice went into labour and at 10am she delivered a baby boy on the dining room table. The most suitable place in the sparsely furnished house for a 36-year-old princess to give birth. The baby was registered as Philippos and was sixth in line to the Greek throne. Meanwhile, Andrea wrote morose letters home complaining about how his troops were ill-equipped and inexperienced. After the debacle of the Greco-Turkish War, King Constantine was forced to abdicate. Andrea was charged with discipline offences and both were exiled. Andrea narrowly missed the death sentence thanks to George V's intervention, and he and his family were smuggled out of Greece by warship. 
The crossing to a port on the heel of the Italian boot was rough. Philip slept in an orange box. Blissfully unaware, he crawled all over the train carriage during the onward journey. The strain was written deep in furrows across Andrea's brow, and Alice was exhausted. They spent Christmas with Alice's mother, Victoria, at Kensington Palace, and then set sail for America to visit Andrea's brother, Christopher, and his wealthy wife, leaving Philip in Paris under the care of his uncle, Prince George of Greece, and his wife, Marie. On their return, she provided the family with a place to live and paid their bills. Christopher's wife died, leaving a fortune which would pay school fees for Philip and his sisters. The family lived off handouts and Philip was often sent to stay with relatives. His aunt Louise found the two-year-old to be quite too adorable for words, a perfect pet, so grown up and speaks quite a lot and uses grand phrases. He is the sturdiest little boy I've ever seen and I can't say he is spoiled. On starting school, Philip was teased for having no last name and eventually admitted he was Philip of Greece. There's another tale of his first day when some boys demanded Philip fight it out with another new boy. After a brief scuffle, he whispered to his opponent, are you having fun? When the other boy admitted he wasn't, Philip said, let's quit, which they did. As much as he could be exuberant and rowdy, he was also polite and disciplined. He said, you shouldn't slam doors or shout loud and wanted to learn to do everything, including waiting a table. His mother had taught him that a gentleman does not allow a woman to wait on him. One of Philip's teachers remembered being struck by the young prince's precocious sense of responsibility. He would arrive half an hour early and clean blackboards, fill inkwells, straighten classroom furniture, pick up waste paper and water the plants. During the holidays, the little blue-eyed boy with the most fascinating white blonde hair often went to stay with the Fufunis family just outside Marseille's. Madame Fulfunis recalled Philip was with us so often people used to ask, are you his guardian or his governess? I was neither, yet much more. I loved Philip as my own. On one visit there, the eldest daughter, Rhea, had both legs in plaster up to her hips due to a nasty fall. Philip would often be found at her bedside talking to her. One day in particular, saw a spectacularly insensitive guest bring toys for all the children except Rhea, telling her, you can't play like the others. The children were stunned, especially four-year-old Philip, whose eyes grew wider and bluer. He ran out, returning with his arms full of his own battered toys and his new one. He put them all on her bed, saying, all this is yours. In the afternoons, they would take the rugs from the drawing room onto the lawn for a siesta. One day, the boys disappeared, only to be found walking door to door with the rolled up carpets on their shoulders, pretending to be Arab salesmen. Other holidays were spent with his aunt Sophie and a collection of cousins, one who remembered Philip as a tiny boy with his shrimping net, running eagerly far ahead of me over a white expanse of sand towards the sea, splashing merrily in the water, refusing to leave it, running and eluding every attempt to capture him. Long after I've returned to my nanny in the waiting towel, Philip is still there until he is finally caught and dragged out forcibly, blue with cold, yelling protests through chattering teeth. Philip saw little of his parents in the course of his nomadic wanderings as a small child. Years later, when an interviewer for The Independent asked him what language he spoke at home, he answered, what do you mean at home? Meanwhile, his mother's behaviour became increasingly eccentric until one day the children were taken out. A doctor came, forcibly sedated her, and she was committed to a sanatorium. The rest of the family soon parted ways. Within 18 months, Philip's sisters were all married to German aristocrats and heading into the Nazi party, and his, family, his father was in the south of France. Philip, who'd been doted on by both of his parents, was suddenly alone. He went to stay with his grandmother at Kensington for a while, but was too raucous for her and his 73-year-old great-aunt. Alice's elder brother, Georgie, took him in acting as his guardian and putting him up during the shorter school holidays. 
Under the care of his aunts and uncles, Philip went to Cheen Prep School, whose headmaster said there was an aura of Philip having arrived in England virtually an orphan, more or less friendless, speaking or certainly writing French better than he did English. He was distinctly different from the other boys and must have been aware of that. Philip soon got used to never knowing at the start of each school holiday where he would be spending them. He kept a trunk or two of his belongings at his grandmother Victoria's apartment and tended to stay there before heading on to his next destination. His hosts described a very good-looking young Viking. Philip was always kind and paid attention, but he could be boisterous. He was frightfully neat and tidy with his room and used to fold his grey flannel trousers under the mattress because that pressed them. And although he had nothing, he never felt sorry for himself. You are where you are in life, so get on with it, was his philosophy. He was never beholden to anyone, which he would have hated, and never let misfortune cloud his life. Philip left Cheam and was briefly educated in Germany. His sister was persuaded to enrol him at the school as a means of increasing her husband's bargaining power with the Nazi regime. Living with his sister was supposed to offer him more stability, but Philip was essentially a pawn in a very dangerous game. He had little opportunity to make real friends and spoke very little German. He was really very isolated, though evidently amused by their ridiculous strutting. And we're told that he laughed whenever he saw the Nazi goose step or Heil Hitler salute, as it reminded him of the Cheam boys asking to use the bathroom. Less than a year later, Philip returned to Britain, to Gordonstown, a boarding school in Scotland, described as old and grey and full of evil, grimly defiant to change. One of Philip's classmates remembered his white, white hair, his friendliness and sense of fun, and the fact that he never swanked about his relatives. The boys were expected to do their share of estate work and windows were kept open throughout the night, which meant that those closest to them were likely to wake up with blankets rain-soaked or in winter covered with snow. The timetable at Gordonstown included seamanship. The boys would cycle to the village where they built, maintained and sailed a variety of craft. Philip tended to cycle regardless of safety rules. And on one occasion, he avoided a clash with a baby in a pram by mere inches. He appeased the mother with an irresistible apology. And this was the beginning of a lifelong love affair with the sea and sailing. Philip was thoroughly trustworthy and not afraid of dirty and arduous work. On expeditions, he was usually given the job of cook because he seemed immune to seasickness. In November 1936, it was arranged for the remains of Philip's uncle, King Constantine, his wife, Queen Sophie, and Philip's grandmother, Queen Olga, who had died in exile, to be brought for reburial in Greece. Fifteen-year-old Philip was given leave from school to attend. The first time he'd been back on Greek soil since 1922. But at dinner the evening before, Philip ate a bad lobster, and on the way from the funeral service to the palace, he was sick in his top hat. He calmly handed it to an unsuspecting aide as he got out of the car and continued on his way. A few months later, Cecile, Philip's sister, and her husband, John, set off to fly to London for a family wedding. Accompanied by their two sons, Cecile's lady-in-waiting, Alice Hahn, Don's widowed mother, Philip's aunt Honor, and the best man, they came into bad weather. Fog could reduce visibility to a few yards. The pilot, nevertheless, went ahead with his descent. It is thought he tried to land because the heavily pregnant Cecile had gone into labour. When they were clearing the wreckage, they found the remains of a newborn baby next to Cecile's crumpled and charred body. When his headmaster told Philip the tragic news, he did not break down. His sorrow was that of a man. The next week, Philip travelled alone to Germany for the funeral. As the coffins were borne through the streets festooned with swastikas, Philip cut a distinctly forlorn figure walking behind them in his civilian suit and dark overcoat, his white blonde hair standing out against the surrounding military greatcoats. John and Cecile had recently joined the Nazi party. Hitler and Goebbels sent messages of sympathy. Goering attended the funeral in person. 
During his last summer holidays from Gordonstown, he travelled to Venice at the invitation of his aunt, the widow of King Alexander, who died of the monkey bite. Approaching 17, tall and athletic, Philip was already very attractive to women. He was also fun to be with. He reminded his cousin of a huge hungry dog, perhaps a friendly collie who'd never had a basket of his own, and responded to every overture with eager tail wagging. He was also immensely gregarious, she wrote, so quickly ready for each new experience, and he was showered with invitations from Venetian society. At one party, he rather overdid the Italian wine and amused the other guests by dancing about on the terrace like a young fawn and swinging from the pergola, which then collapsed and he disappeared under the greenery. In early December the same year, Philip's uncle and guardian, Georgie Milford Haven, stepped on a marble, slipped on a marble floor and broke his thigh. After noticing that the fracture was taking a long time to heal, it was discovered that Georgie had bone marrow cancer. He died a few months later. Following the death of his guardian, Philip gradually began to spend more time with Georgie's younger brother, Dickie Mountbatten, who would become a huge influence on him. Dickie's daughter recalled, Philip just appeared for the holidays, so to speak. He was always very good looking and full of fun and games and quite a tease. So he was always someone one was very pleased to see when they arrived. When he went to sit his entrance exams for the Navy, Dickie wrote in a letter to his wife. He has his meals with us and he really is killingly funny. I like him very much. Shortly after arriving at Dartmouth, another tragedy struck. Joanna, Cecile's only surviving daughter, too young to join the fateful plane journey, contracted meningitis and died. Philip's childhood was marked by instability and tragedy, but he never let it get him down. He didn't allow it to stop him from shining brightly in so many ways. Thank you so much, Kate, for covering off what is, um, it really is, I don't think, I want to ask Heather, who's American and has probably seen a fair bit of coverage over there. Did you know anything about who this old dude was before he was the old dude? Um. A little bit. I knew he was Prince Philip and Charles' dad and Andrew's dad, but that's about where it ended. Did you have any idea it was such a miserable childhood? No. Sounded awful. It's really that thing about him having no home. He really didn't. I mean, he had trunks at different people's houses because they would just send him wherever was most convenient when he happened to break up from school. There was something about him. He was going to somebody's house. I forget whose now. And she said, yeah, I can have him until the autumn, but um, not for the week of Goodwood because we'll need his room. We'll need the room for guests. Yeah, that's that's what his life was like. Um, and also as well, that non-reaction to his sister being killed is because he's had... He's had a reaction when his mum's been put in an institution um, and he's had all this other family tragedy as well. And that he had got to the point where he had inured himself against it. Mm. So these things would happen and he would go, "Okay, fine. There's no point crying about it because it just keeps happening. Merrin. Yeah, yeah. He just developed a really, really hard uh, uh, sort of tough exterior, didn't he, I think? Yeah. Heather, I was going to ask, what is the common, what do you think the common perception of our royal family is in America? Because we've got, we've got Harry and Meghan have hopped the pond now and there's always a lot of discussion about what they should and shouldn't be doing. But what is, what is the common perception of our monarchy at the moment? Um, I know we have a really, really big fascination with it. Um, I mean, if you think about it, what little girl doesn't want to be a princess? True. So, I mean, Disney's done a great job of being like, you too can be a princess. Yeah, so, yeah. You know, any anybody who has a monarchy 
we're fascinated with because, well, we don't have one anymore. We didn't grow up with the same people over generations. Like our parents knew about their grandparents and our grandparents knew about their great grandparents. And our, our, our president comes and goes every 48 years. Yeah. So we don't really get attached to them. It's, Oh, Hey, bye. And you know, when, with a monarchy, you're raised with them and they almost become, you know, part of a family. It's enduring. So, um, I always thought that the queen and Prince Philip kind of reminded me of grandparents. Yeah. But, um, we definitely have a big, um, fascination with, with the royal family. Um, I know some people who are like, I don't understand it, which I do and I don't because I, I, I haven't grown up under it. I'm not used to having this kind of power, Alex. I know it's great, isn't it? Oh, it's just, it's too, it's too much for me. Tell you what, seeing as I'm, I'm getting to say, can I call on you? Sure. Okay. So I get World War Two, don't I? Yes. It's your, it's your area. You know. Okay. So Royals, you look at them and they wear a lot of medals and a lot of the time they don't earn their medals. Um, the medals were out today at the service and he earned every damn one of them. Um, so we're going to talk about them and talk about what he did specifically in World War Two. So they decide on Dartmouth and they decide it's essentially like what William and Harry did, where they went and spent a couple of uh, years in the military. That's what it's supposed to be. George V it was supposed to do it longer, but his brother did it with the army and the navy as well. Um, and it's just a couple of years and it's all about discipline and rounding off an education and giving you a sense of public service. And that's what it was for. Uh, he could have. There was a Greek Navy, um, but you have to see it from his dad's point of view. His dad has served his country and they keep taking him in, using him for his service and then like getting rid of him again and treating him like dirt. And he doesn't really want that for his son. Um, so he doesn't go with the Greek nautical thing. He decides on the Royal Navy. And at this point as well, Philip says, England is my home. So this brief stint is going to be with the Royal Navy and not the Greek. So he's a late starter going into Dartmouth. He's 17 and a lot of boys have been there since they're 13. Um, and he goes in and he, he eclipses a lot of them, actually. It causes some bad feeling because he's good. He's really good at what he does. Um, he's surpassing boys that have been there four years. Uh, we do see more of this propensity to, so he's popular and he's fun because he's self-effacing, but he can be a piece of work. And I think, We'd just be being disingenuous if we did not point this out for his life, that he could be hard work. And he knew it as well. He knew he could be hard work. I'll tell you in a minute a letter that he sent to uh, uh, the mother of a friend who died in North Africa, and you'll see what I mean. People don't tend to mind because he, he quickly gets over himself and because he's so much fun at other times and he's one of the lads and he's not pretentious or anything. Um, they don't really hold these moments of uh, grandeur over his head really so but he does really well there's a bit of resentment about how well he does actually you gotta remember as well uh, he's a Mountbatten he's bound to go places in the Navy the second he sets foot in it if he decides to which he doesn't at this point he's still doing his training when, when World War Two starts and he's a neutral so he's Greek so first off he wants to serve uh, but how do you do it do you naturalize him British well they can't because they've suspended that for literally everybody till the end of the second world and he can't be in a combat zone because he's supposed to be neutral. And yet he's serving with one of the belligerents. So in the end, it's Dickie Mountbatten that pulls strings. And he is allowed to go out and serve, but not 
in an active combat area. So essentially he can only do background work because he is officially still a neutral. So he joins Ramillies at Colombo um, as a midshipman in 1940 in February. And I think this is his first time out of Europe at all. And what World War II does for him is show him the world. Uh, he will end up on multiple continents in World War II uh, and he will embrace every moment he gets to spend in another country and not in a royal, I'm going to wave at you from a distance way. I mean, so when he's with Ramillies, they stop in Australia and he disappears for four days. And what he's done is go in and found some work at a sheep station, just doing ordinary grunt work um, just to get out and see the country and stuff like that. So he was definitely one for that. But what Ramillies is doing, escorting troop ships between uh, Australia, New Zealand and Egypt. So uh, there's not really a lot to say about this other than that it's quite dull. He does get to see Australia at one end. Um, uncomfortably hot as well. That's the overriding impression you get from Ramillas is this sweltering bucket going backwards and forwards um, and with not a lot of mitigating fun or excitement in war terms to show for it. So in May 1940, he moves again. He spends the first part of the war really like rocketing about different ships. HMS Kent um, is a cruiser and she's on the China station. So again, now he gets to see South Africa, India, still doesn't get any action uh, and he, he wants it. I mean, there's a journal entry or a letter where he says, we have something to look forward to. There is an enemy raider in the Indian Ocean. Uh, that'll sound familiar to Chris. And there is just a chance our tracks will cross and he's quite excited about it. But unfortunately for him, that doesn't happen. So there he is plugging along, being a neutral. Then it's off to Kent's sister ship in August, which is Shropshire. Um, and they're just, again, they're patrolling from Durban um, up to the Red Sea and back again. So non-combatant, um, not very interesting work. But things are starting to change because Italy enters the war in June 1940 and the Greeks want to stay out of it. Uh, but Mussolini really wants to show Hitler what he can do. And he sees Greece as an e easy target. So the, the two key dates for Philip's war, 15th of August, an Italian submarine sinks a Greek naval ship. And then in October on the 28th, Italy invades Greece. And that means the gloves are off. He, he's no longer a neutral. His country is at war. Uh, so he doesn't have to remain in the sort of plugging roles in the background. Uh, gloves off. Off he goes to HMS Valiant, which he joins at Alexandria, and the action is pretty much instant. So beginning of 1941, he's done four ships in 11 months. Uh, this is a battleship that's undergone modernisation, so it's not new, but it's been polished. Three days um, after he arrives, I think, they're sent to bombard the Libyan coast at Bardia. Uh, he says the whole operation was a very spectacular affair. Then it's on to Sicily. Uh, this is where he first sees stuff happening. Um, and grim stuff as well. So the Southampton gets blown up uh, and the Gallant gets her bow taken off by a mine as well. Uh, and they nearly get hit. And he wrote about that. He said, two torpedo bombers attacked us, but a quick alteration, of course, foiled their attempt and their fish passed down the port side. So a close shave for Valiant, um, but he's still safe. And by March, they're transferring British troops from Alexandria to Crete and Piraeus to bolster Greek defences ahead of the um, what they expect to be Nazi landings. And then you get Cape Matapan, which is his first battle, and he does really well. So the gist of this battle is, on the 7th of March, they're due to go ashore for leave, but on the Thursday morning, they get rumours starting to go around the ship saying that some Italian cruisers had left port and gone to sea. Uh, so in the darkness, they set off as well. Uh, Valiant leaves, as does Warspite, Formidable, Barham, and nine destroyers. They're going looking for these Italian ships. 
Um, they spot them the next uh, the next morning. Planes spot them. So there's an Italian. There's a battleship, cruisers, destroyers, and uh, what are they going to do? They're in the Peloponnese. Uh, they engage them at long range. The British spend the afternoon chasing them about. Then Cunningham, who's on war spite, he has this really, it's brave. He decides on a night attack, which is dangerous and risky, but the Italians really aren't set up to deal with a night attack. So it's potentially could yield really good results. And Philip's role in this battle is to stand and swing the searchlight around. So what he would do is find an enemy ship, light it up briefly, get rid of the light, and then they would open up a broadside on it. So he has this unenviable job, unenviable job, I guess, because surely if you see where the light is coming from, you're going to open fire on that guy. Um, so it's not much fun for him. And he's he does talk about So he lit one ship up and they opened fire on it, hit it. And then he completely, he wasn't even in his head that there may be other boats around. He was so taken over by the excitement that there's people screaming at him, go left, go left, to light up another one. Um, and he is completely oblivious at that point. So he says, I trained left over the whole ship until the bridge structure was in the centre of the beam. The effect was rather like flashing a strong torch on a small model about five yards away. She was illuminated in an undamaged condition for a period of about five seconds when our second broadside left the ship and almost at once she was completely blotted out from stem to stern. Uh, he estimated that more than 70% of the shells must have hit. Um, he only got one tiny correction while they were doing that. So Kate Matapan for him um, is a good show. Uh, he gets rewarded for his bravery in that as well. Uh, but it's not in the grand scheme of things. It's not going too well for um, the Allies in the Mediterranean at that point. So within 10 days, you've got the Germans going through Greece, you've got Rommel pushing the Brits back on Cairo, and you've got the Germans establishing air superiority over the central Mediterranean as well, um, and Malta being besieged. So 20th, 20th of May, there's an all-out attack on Crete, and the Valiant is sent to intercept German landings. Um, I'm just, I can do no better than tell you what he said about this day because actually he left a journal entry that just got it bang on so he says as we came in sight of the straits we saw Nyad and Carlisle being attacked by bombers we went right into within 10 miles of Crete and then the bombing started in earnest Stuckers came over but avoided the big ships and went for the crippled cruisers and destroyer screens Greyhound was hit right aft by a large bomb her stern blew up and she sank about 20 minutes later Gloucester and Fiji were sent in to help them. Three ME-109s attacked Warspires dive bombers, and she was hit just where her starboard forehead mountain was. When we had got about 15 miles from the land, 16 Stuckers came out and attacked the two cruisers. Gloucester was badly hit and sank some hours later. The fleet then had some more attention, and we were bombed from a high level by a large number of small bombs dropped in sticks of 12 or more. One Dornier came straight for us from the port beam and dropped 12 bombs when he was almost overhead. We turned to port and ceased firing when suddenly the bombs came whistling down, landing very close all down the port side. It was only some time later that I discovered we had been hit twice on the quarterdeck. One bomb exploded just abaft the quarterdeck screen on the port side. The other landed within 20 feet of it, just inboard of the guardrails, blowing a hole into the wardroom laundry. There were four casualties, one killed and three injured. So he really is seeing action now. Um, 
there's one glorious little interlude at this point where he ends up being a stoker for a few days as well because a load of Chinese stokers jump ship and run away and they don't have enough men. So four of them end up down there uh, shoveling coal. And he's quite happy to do that. Uh, 1942, he moves ship again to HMS Wallace. And he's a sub-lieutenant by now. And on this ship, he'll also get promoted to lieutenant or make him one of the youngest in the Royal Navy at 21. So he really is doing very well. I mean, obviously, it's easier to get promoted and advance through the ranks in the middle of a war. But he really is doing well. So this is a destroyer. Uh, to start with, they're based out of Rosais, um, escorting convoys of merchantmen down to Sheerness. Um, essentially, they call it, you think this sounds like, oh, close to home, a little bit safer. It's really not. They call this stretch of water Ebo Alley, and it's really dangerous. Only if you've got German submarines, but you've also got air attacks as well. Not to mention the sheer amount of traffic in there. And at one point, they get rammed by accident by another ship. Um, so it's quite full on, even though they're going up and down the coast of Britain. It's not an easy time whatsoever. Uh, and in October, he gets that promotion. Winter of 1942, and I find this really interesting. So he loses a friend at this point, And it's interesting because he doesn't hear about it straight away. And then suddenly he gets a letter and he realises that he's kind of sent a Christmas message or something to the guy's family without knowing he died. So it would have been like he wasn't referencing it so he writes a letter and what I was saying about his personality he says to the guy's mother as the older boy he was the guide and the pillow and in a great many ways I tried to model myself on him as I grow older I was able to find many of my shortcomings by just comparing myself to him and in some cases I managed to put them right it's not easy for me to try and say what I thought of him because there are no words which can describe a friendship between two boys those things just are and one does not stop to think why. I know you will never think very much of me. I am rude and unmannerly and I say many things out of turn, which I realise afterwards must have hurt someone. Then I'm filled with remorse and I try and get matters right. So there's actually quite a lot of self-awareness um, as well about how brusque his personality could be. And I'm sure we're going to hear quite a few stories of that as we go on tonight. June 1943, the Wallaces made it as far as the Allied invasion of Sicily, where they're covering the Canadian landings, which I believe off the top of my head are the southeast corner of Sicily. Uh, but I could just be making that up. Uh, 8th of July, they come in for the attention of some German bombers. And the way it, it shakes down is that they know they've been picked up and spotted by these German aircraft. And they know that come nightfall, they're going to get hit and they're going to they're going to try and take them out. And it's Philip that comes up with this idea of what to do about it. And it's really quite Hornblower-esque in its sort of imagination and stuff. So what they do is he gives orders to come up with this just a ratty looking raft, basically, with a smoke flare on each end that they then put over the side of the ship. Then they leg it away, kill all their lights and engines, and the smoke makes it look like the Germans have already hit it. So then when the German aircraft come back, they bomb the raft instead of the ship and there's actually a really good um just a summary of what it meant and why it was so important so there's a guy called Hargraves on the ship with him and he is a yeoman I think and he says uh, the sound of the aircraft grew louder until I thought it was directly overhead and I screwed up my shoulders in anticipation of the bombs the next thing was the scream of the bombs but at some distance the ruse had worked and the aircraft was bombing the raft I suppose he was under the impression that he had hit us in his last attack and was now finishing the job. Prince Philip saved our lives that night. 
It had been marvellously quick thinking, conveyed to a willing team and put into action as if rehearsed. I suppose there might have been a few survivors, but certainly the ship would have been sunk. He was always very courageous and resourceful and thought very quickly. You would say to yourself, what the hell are we going to do now? And Philip would come up with something. And he has one more ship in the war as well, which we will just mention, because again, uh, he sees some action and, and it's in the Pacific this time. So his final ship, Springer 44, he joins HMS Welp, which is another destroyer um, and is going to be his last ship during the war. And um, at first they're at Newcastle while they're doing some refitting and stuff. And this is where he starts to draw some public attention for the first time um, in Britain. And that is kind of because he's this dashing, very good looking prince walking around their local town and they're all a bit like oh hello and that uh, you get this in Australia as well that wherever he goes he turns heads and it's interesting because kind of got a reputation from somewhere of being a bit of a man whore at this present like at this point and uh if you the way they asked the girls they didn't know where it came from like one of them says I just don't know how you would have got that idea it was all very chaste I mean he's not an angel uh, he's got girlfriends at this point but he definitely wasn't like that, that he was very, it was all quite chaste and friendshipy a lot of the time and that he was very respectful and just a nice boy, basically. So they weren't on board with that interpretation of him. And they thought that that was a lot of like just tabloid sensationalism after he met the Queen and that it had been chucked in on top to try and talk about something before he met her and create a story where there wasn't one. So they do head off to the Pacific. I just want to as well, this is where I always stop to just briefly mention, because the question you always get asked is what about the Nazi relatives, which I know Kate has already covered. But I want to talk about his mum. But his mother is one of the Righteous Among Nations, which is the same award as Oscar Schindler for the work that she did. And this is a woman with severe mental health issues who was in Greece by the time in Athens, living effectively a life of poverty uh, by World War Two and spent some of World War Two protecting Jews from the Nazis. And for that reason, she is buried on the Mount of Olives. Is that how you say it? Buried on the Mount of Olives or at the Mount of Olives? Whatever. Everyone's nodding. I don't think any of us really know. But yeah, so I always think that we should um, talk about his mum as well. He very, I suppose there was a glancing blow with possibly being driven towards a Nazi education and stuff but then the exact reason they'd sent him to Germany to be educated was to be educated by uh, a Jewish guy who'd founded a successful school and in the end they sent him to that guy's school after he'd been persecuted out of Germany and Scotland so I don't think they were ever really sort of entertaining the idea of him becoming involved with the Nazi regime at all uh, and it's just not part of his makeup at all and it annoys me when people mention it because he spent six years fighting against the Nazis. So Welp, part of a destroyer scream in the Pacific, there was one incident where they were going to, they were using it, they used as a screen for a bombing raid on oil refineries. Uh, this is the one where there's that rescue attempt on the crew of the bomber. So they get an SOS and uh, Philip has the ship turn around and make all speed for the site where the bombers come down. And they actually managed to rescue two of the guys. Unfortunately, the others were caught by the Japanese and beheaded at Changi. But the two that they rescued were Dickie Richardson and Gus Halliday. And uh, the BBC actually linked them back up with Prince Philip 60 years later for a radio programme called A Right Royal Rescue, which is really worth trying to get hold of. So again, there was sort of a daring act of going off to rescue full speed this bomber. Uh, they had been in the water and they couldn't get their life raft to work. So it was quite timely when they did arrive as they really were in trouble. So he's at sea on VJ Day 
uh, they were actually on their way to help invade Japan when the bomb was dropped at Hiroshima. And they just got to Guam when Nagasaki happened. Uh, and Welk was actually one of the first Allied ships to enter Japanese waters because uh, she was escorting the US flagship into Tokyo on the 2nd of September. And uh, he was on that flagship to, to witness the Japanese surrender as well. And I'm sure we'll get later on to the incident where he refused to meet with a certain Japanese dignitary afterwards. Um, that's basically his war. He doesn't actually get home till January 46 because they're, they're put on collecting POWs and bringing them back. Uh, and I think he finds life quite boring in the immediate aftermath of the Second World War when he gets back and gets given a fresh command. But as you can see, none of those medals are ceremonial. He earned them all. If nothing else, then, and you say, oh, I don't care about the royals, but if nothing else, we've lost a brave veteran of the Second World War this week. And I think that certainly should be remembered. That's amazing. Thanks so much, Alex, for all that detail. I mean, it really sounds like I mean, he really did serve in the war. He was properly in it. Yeah. Uh, he had the necessarily cushy bit at the beginning um, <laughs> because of his Greek status, but didn't want it and actually went off and earned all of that, the accolades that he got for the Second World War. He went off and earned them in spades. Gosh, we've got a couple of barflies with us tonight, Alex, hanging out. We've mm-hmm. got, we have the wonderful Mr. Chris Sams and... Sophie's here. <laughs> How are we doing? You right? Yeah, yeah, we're doing fine. She's <laughs> nodding very bashfully. Gone all shy. So Chris is our, you know, our um, resident naval expert. Um, Prince Philip's service on boats. Um, yeah, yeah, it's, it's quite, quite impressive. Um, I don't know quite where to begin. I mean, the, the Pacific, the original Pacific posting, um, the, Somerville, the Remelies was an absolute dump. Um, they, militarily, she wasn't very good, but, um, if she'd have run across the, I believe it was the Sheer, which was a pocket battleship, which was off Madagascar at the beginning of the war, um, that would have been quite an interesting, uh, battle to get caught up in. I think you probably would have quite enjoyed that, but, um, Matapan probably was definitely the highlight. Um, it really did, uh, address the naval balance in the Mediterranean and scared the hell out of the Italians. Yeah, it stopped the Italians coming out in force again, didn't it, in World War Two, and trying to take us on? Absolutely, yeah. They lost like 2,000 men, um, and we lost three in an aircraft crash on Formidable. Um, so, yeah, because we had night radar, we were able to pick up their ships a lot more easily. And, um, yeah, it, it, it was it was kind of the, the Jutland of the Mediterranean in the Second World War, if that kind of hangs. <laughs> Yeah, e-boat alley was quite treacherous for, um, German e-boat torpedo boats would, uh, often attack at night time. Um, they were high speed, uh, come in at like 24, 25 knots, loose off a few torpedoes and out again, strike convoys on hit and fade. Um, so often you wouldn't know they were, they were going to attack until something blew up. Um, and then again, as you said, you had the, uh, the German air force, the Luftwaffe would come over as well. They'd tail you, um, and see what they could see what they could try and do to break up the attacks. We've had uh, Will Idale on to talk about kamikaze hunters on History Hat because people don't really register the British naval presence in the Pacific, do they? It's all about the Americans. Yeah, it's one of those. Uh, my granddad was very keen to point out, like um, how uh, the Americans won the war, and the Pacific is the big example. Um, the Royal Navy kind of withdraws from the Indian Ocean after the. Uh, uh, 
Colombo raid in 40, uh, beginning of 40, Easter 42. Um, but they come back in 44 with the biggest flotilla that had ever been the Royal Navy's ever put together. They had a massive, um, force and, um, were involved in quite a lot of, um, engagements. I believe they were, from memory, they were at Okinawa as well. So many battleships and, uh, ships were freed after the war with Germany was over. Um, but they just, just don't get a mention because it's all about midway and island hopping and they just kind of ignore the fact that we were there. I mean, they had sea fires flying over Okinawa, which is, I think is fantastic, but it's not something that gets talked about a lot. Will's book is fantastic though. If people want to get more of a, a semblance of an idea, I think there's a passing mention of the whelp in there, but it's definitely more about Britain's impact on the Pacific from a naval point of view as well. Anything else, Chris, you want to add to the war service? Off the top of my head, no. But yeah, it was a good. It was it was quite a good service, and as you said, it, it's nice to see a, a, someone who's a head of state with medals that they've actually earned rather than have just been given. Charlie, what are we going to do next? Okay, well, I'm going to jump in now because I think it's important. I mean, I'm not used to to hosting, so I should have <laughs> probably said at the beginning that one of the reasons we're here and the reason we're talking about Prince Philip is not not just sort of from a, a daily mail tabloid rag, um, bum licky, creepy time. We've actually lost someone who is incredibly important as a, a figure within the monarchy and in this country and someone who has served for a very long time. So what I wanted to talk about is Prince Philip's role as the Queen's consort. I'm not even going to touch on romance. I'm leaving romance to Are we gonna, one. Is that, that Beth by any chance? That's stuff? Beth. Beth yeah, is covering romance. Oh my goodness. And I'm, I'm actually, I'm saving, I'm saving Beth. I'm saving that up. So I'm going to talk to you about, um, constitutional monarchy yay, yay. Um, <laughs> i'm glad i'm not the one that has to do this this time <laughs> look I, you know i'm an i'm a nerd i'm a nerd for the royals and um and for the history of the royals and so you know i hope i'm not shattering too many illusions when i tell you that prince philip's role of queen's consort has no function whatsoever within our constitutional monarchy the role of queen consort carries no constitutional weight either. But there does exist this double standard in which the wife of a king is known by the title of queen, but the husband of a queen must never, ever, ever be given the title of king. Why wasn't the Duke of Edinburgh our King Philip? That's a stupid question with a simple answer. The patriarchy. Smash it. Um, if the queen's husband is known as a king, he outranks her. What's true on the chessboard is true in real life. Now I'm being, I'm being deliberately facetious here. I'm being, I'm being that, that friend in the pub. You remember that friend you've been avoiding for a year? I'm being that friend in the pub. I'm being deliberately facetious because I'm asking you to set your mindset back to the 1950s and our Queen's accession. When Elizabeth became Queen on the 6th of February 1952, her world and the world of her young husband were forever changed. They're no longer just simply a married couple. She was 25 at the time. He was 30 with two small children. His wife was the monarch and his children were heirs to the throne. But what was he? Was Philip? As consort to the queen, he would hold no formal position within the structure of government. And as husband to a monarch, he would forever be outranked by his wife. There are some men 
who might struggle with that concept even today. To say nothing of a man in so unmanly a position in the 1950s, Philip was either going to need to settle into the life of professional husband or establish a role for himself. In the early 80s, a historian called David Canadine argued that the traditions of British monarchy were invented during the reign of Queen Victoria as a, a means of providing some security because, you know, the world's kind of rapidly changing around the monarchy at that point and we need stability and security. And what Canadine suggests is that members of the royal family have had a certain amount of agency when it comes to determining their own roles and their function within the monarchy because the public will just accept what they see as a tradition when it's happening within a royal house. Because if it's royal, then it stands to reason what we see is long-standing tradition and it's, it's older than us. So, for example, think of the title Princess of Wales. Um, what comes to your mind is the function of that. It's going to be charity work, isn't it? That's the first thing you think of when you think, what does the Princess of Wales do? But you're thinking of Diana. You've got no other frame of reference for what that title entails. And I'd be willing to eat one of my many hats if you're thinking of Mary of Tech or Caroline of Brunswick when I talk about princesses of Wales doing charitable work, because neither of those were known for that when they were princess of Wales. The role was given purpose for the modern world by Diana. And though Camilla, Duchess of Cornwall, has effectively been fulfilling that same role for many years now on the quiet, You can see Kate, Duchess of Cambridge, being styled to inherit when she becomes Princess of Wales, even though the title really isn't that old. The traditions that come with it aren't that old, as you would imagine. Philip had constitutional carte blanche when Elizabeth became queen. But as any writer knows, there's nothing scarier than a blank page. Free reign, limitless possibility just yawning before you. Terrifying stuff. If Philip had looked to those who'd gone before him for inspiration, he may have found the example of his great great grandfather in common with his wife, Prince Albert, as the traditional model of Prince Consort. Now, in fact, the title of Prince Consort was invented for Albert and it was never officially used by Prince Philip. So though it's accurate to describe him as Prince Consort because that's what he was, it was never his official title. Now, the Victorian era, era, the Victorian era isn't my area at all, but anyone with a basic knowledge of Prince Albert knows him to be a moderniser, patron saint of trains and maker of royal babies and nothing else. Prince Albert known for nothing else. Apart from screwing up his kids. <laughs> I was thinking of the genital piercing, but you know, we can, we can move on from that. Let's um, <laughs> do the elephant in the room. It's not, apparently it's not because he had one. I, I can't imagine him having one, but I, I just love that it's named after him. Moving swiftly on. <laughs> Back to constitutional monarchy, because I know you're loving it. I know you're loving it. Um, in the early 21st century, some anthologies were written on the subject of queenship. So specifically on Queen's consort. And they argued that consorts have long been able to affect change in society by exerting a form of soft power, which is driven by their own particular character and their interests, um, which is something that we're going to see a lot later with Prince Philip. When she came to the throne, Elizabeth stated that her consort would have place, preeminence and precedence next to her. 
on all occasions and in all meetings, except where otherwise provided by an act of parliament. So as consort, Philip supported the Queen in her sovereign duties and accompanied her to ceremonies like the state opening of parliament, to state dinners and on tours abroad. And he actually took precedence over the Prince of Wales in most places, the exception being in Parliament, um, which he only ever attended for the state opening, walking beside the Queen and sitting beside her, which is slightly unusual. But again, tradition is what we see. So if that's what he does, then that's traditional. Now, Philip wasn't crowned within the coronation service as previous consorts has been. The Queen consort traditionally arrives bareheaded and gets crowned with their own smaller crown as part of the the ceremony. It'd be interesting to see if in future coronations, if we do see that. He did lead the homage of the nobility, kneeling before the Queen and swearing to be her liege man of life and limb. Um, But coming back to royal traditions, we've actually got very few examples of a Queen's consort within the coronation ceremony because Victoria was crowned before she was married. And there's very little written of Prince George's role in Queen Anne's coronation. The only other time we've really got a married woman being um, being crowned. Save that he actually led those same tributes from the nobility as Prince Philip did. So really, we're kind of making this all up as we go along. But we had that one example from 1702 and we, we kind of ran with that in um, 1953 he was made a prince of the united kingdom by letters patent in february 1957 and in april 2009 he became the longest serving british royal consort by the time of his retirement in august 2017 prince philip had completed according to the gods of wikipedia some 22,219 solo engagements and that number doesn't include the ones that he did standing behind the Queen's side. And he was patron saint of around 800 different organisations at that point as well. Zach's going to talk on this a little bit later, some of the organisations to which Prince Philip gave his name and dedicated his time. He pushed for television cameras to be allowed inside Westminster Abbey to invite the world into the coronation. And he spent the last years of his life reminding those who would demand too much of the Queen that his wife is a woman in her 90s. The example that Prince Philip has left us in the role of Prince Consort is in these ways the epitome of soft power. Walking beside the Queen, keeping her company, making her laugh when she needed it. Modernising yet stabilising, pushing yet protecting. He made the role his own and who knows when that example will be needed again. He's a great example of a Prince Consort and generally as a man. Absolutely. Thank you so much. I think what's in, what's impressed me, everyone keeps asking, every interview I do, I get asked, could he have been first sea lord? Someone has said this and everybody's run with it. The answer is undoubtedly yes. He's a freaking third generation, third generation Mountbatten. Mm. Hell yes, he could have been first sea lord, but he chose something else. He chose to marry the queen and put himself second for the next 73 years, which yeah. I think makes him a bigger, tougher man than one who stands at the head of the Royal Navy. Because, like you say, no precedent, um, difficult at times, butting heads with his wife and the institution at times to try and make, I'm trying to carve a rollout for yourself. Yeah. Um, which, look at how his great, uh, how his grandson's effed that up. 
in the last six months. It's not easy. And people that think they just sit there and ring a bell and have their whole lives laid out for them, it really isn't. And he has spent 73 years after winning a world war. He has spent 73 years dedicated to that he didn't retire till he was well into his 90s so I think you're right he has he has Lord knows when we'll need that precedent again but he has written it he really really has yeah perfect example of of the supportive husband you know really throughout all of that and yeah Beth's going to talk about that romantic side but there's you know I I actually believed until I started looking into it that when he knelt and he he pledged to be her her liege man of life and limb I actually thought those words had been written for him because it's so perfectly what he did mm. and then when you start looking at previous coronations you realize that that's just the pledge of the nobility that's what they say um but it it that is so what what he did in that role he supported and he he made it his own he really did he does. And if nobody else picks up on the television coverage and why it was so revolutionary and why he was so important as a moderniser, good Renta Quill's got her hand up. Because <laughs> that absolutely needs to be said. But where do you want to go next, Charlie? Um, we need to say hello to another one of our barflies. We've got another barfly here. We've got James in the pub. Hello, James. Hi, Charlie. Hello. So you've been, you've been enjoying listening to all the, yeah, the, the start of, our special on Prince Philip. Any thoughts on the prince so far? I think uh, this is probably something that might be talked about later, but it's everything he passed on to his kids as well. When you look at all his kids, you see a different part of his personality. I mean, Anne is the most extremely hardworking from memory as well, in engagement wise. Maybe Alex can go deeper into that daddy's 100% daddy's girl <laughs> yeah and she is the most hard working then you've got Charles carrying the charities on his own charity work the environmental work as well which Philip started and really pushed for Charles really carried that on Andrew from memory went into the navy and then obviously you have Edward who did a stint in the Royal Marines but was also allowed to do his own things and went the same boarding school as Prince Philip before he decided to not retire from that, but also take up the mantle of helping the Queen. So he gave up his jobs and everything eventually to help the Queen more with engagements. And you sort of see like slices of Philip's personality in each of every one of them. Mm. And it's good to see all of that carried on through what he taught them. A really nice point, actually, James, that there's sort of a bit of him on display in all of them. But yeah, Anne, 100% daddy's little girl. And she looks utterly, utterly stricken, doesn't she? If you see her at the moment. Um, Yeah, she really does. And we can only hope she carries on pushing forward like he did and with her engagements as well. Excellent. Can you imagine taking this one away from our very own resident Disney princess? I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. I just thought, who is going to talk about this incredibly touching love story? And so, ladies and gentlemen, I give you the wonderful Beth. Right. Well, as you quite rightly pointed out, it's I am the resident history hack romantic. So it's only right that I contribute to this recording on the relationship that Prince Philip had with the Queen. Um, we all know where it first starts, but I just want to go back to that a little bit. It's the first time 
Prince Philip catches the eye of who would become Queen Elizabeth is the summer of 1939 when Elizabeth was just 13 years old. Um, they were on a trip to Dartmouth, obviously, the, where uh, the king had obviously been, he'd been there himself. It was somewhere he knew quite well. Um, now we think, oh, Elizabeth was, was only 13 years old at the time. You know, Philip was 18, you know, who's tall. Mate, I remember being 13. Well, like, this is my exact Everywhere. Absolutely. This is my exact point. Who was not at 13 in love with a, with an 18-year-old, a tall, dashing 18-year-old? You know, it was, we all were. We Clive all says he wasn't. I well, Clive wasn't, Clive. but, yeah. I don't, don't believe him. Don't believe anything. Absolutely was. Absolutely you were. Um <laughs> So they were visiting the the the, the Royal Naval College at Dartmouth, and Philip was actually at the time one of the few healthy cadets that could accompany the family because there'd been an outbreak of mumps and chickenpox, and he was one of the only ones who wasn't ill. So he was one of the ones allowed to accompany the family. And of course, you know, according to um, Marion Crawford, who was the governess to the two princesses at the time, said that Philip immediately struck. Elizabeth with his you know his athletic ability um he was noted with his viking good looks as well his fair hair blue eyes really tall I mean come on who who, who wouldn't get a little bit of a flutter of a, of a, a beautiful blonde prince we all would um Crawford mentions as well in memoirs and letters that he would come aboard to the king's yacht for meal times and uh, Elizabeth would turn bl- blush and be so very pink faced. She would be very embarrassed that he would be there. Um, it was noted by lots of people that she'd taken a shine to him, including uh, Lord Louis Mountbatten, who we all know, obviously the uh, Philip's uh, uncle. And you probably just see the cogs turning already. Then at that point, hmm, where could this go? I wonder. Um, uh, but but it was quite openly talked about that she had this crush on the eighteen-year-old prince. Um, one of the biographers, not the biographers, um, Margaret Rhodes, who wrote in her own autobiography, she is a cousin of the Queen, um, wrote that Elizabeth was truly very much in love from the very first time she saw him, which is, you know, like, oh, you know, I think about that, you know, she was 13 years old and she already had that sort of feeling that they're going to continue through the rest of her life. We've had the visit to the Royal College in 1939. Um Second World War breaks out over the summer in the September. And obviously, we've heard Alex talk about Philip's service in the Navy during that period. But what's also happening at this time as well is that Elizabeth and Philip are actually writing to each other and exchanging letters. Um, They've also come across each other during visits throughout the war period. There's a particular moment in 1943 where Philip is invited to Windsor Castle to stay for Christmas. Um, and it's at this point Philip gets to see the future queen perform in a pantomime of Aladdin and observers witnessed the change in behaviour. So obviously, you know, she's 13 years old originally, 1939. It's a young teenage schoolgirl crush. However, four years later, she is becoming a young woman. She is no longer a child. This is someone who, you know, 17 and 22, you know, I was 18 and my husband was 22 when we met. It's not, the age difference is not so prominent when you get to that sort of age. So we can start to see, you know, that these 
actual proper romantic feelings start to emerge. Elizabeth kept a copy of kept a photograph of him on her mantelpiece in her bedroom, and Philip carried her picture with him throughout his war service. I mean, come on, if that's not romantic story that you could write a Disney film about. Oh, there are other girlfriends as well, but he was very oh. much at this stage, he was very much like, look, what will be, what will be. Don't interfere, people. Let's see what happens. Yeah. And and I think that was healthy and that I think that's you know, he was a young man off serving in the war, you know. He could he could have been killed at any point, you know, during his, his very courageous service, you know. Of course he was going to have some female friends, some female companions. But obviously we see that their attachment is very strong to each other. And obviously their, their feelings for each other grow and there's news, you know, there's rumours in the newspapers circulating that there's going to be an engagement. There's, is there a bit of romance here? And eventually in the summer of 1946, Philip does ask the king for Elizabeth's hand in marriage. Now at this point she's, she's 20. Um, and the king does grant the request, of course, but they, on the proviso that any formal engagement is delayed until Elizabeth is 21, which is the following April. They're worried, aren't they? It's the first chap she's met, and that's yep. the worry of the king and queen, is that this is the first guy that's come along, and she's yep. serious about him. Um, you know, there, there is a point, isn't it? Well, it's like, oh, let's let the the passionate moment die down let's be sensible is this still going to be where we want to go and it is because they do announce the engagement the next summer in july 1947 she Um, knew her mind didn't she oh absolutely she is a woman who knows her her, she knows what she wants i think he wants her scandinavian looking dashing prince damn it and i don't blame her we all do um so Prince Philip as well, actually quite quite a modern notion, I think. He helps design the engagement ring um, with platinum and diamonds that using stones from a tiara that belonged to his mother. So that real attachment for bringing it from his mother, which we know we've talked about as well being one of the righteous among nations. He's really bringing the element of his mother and the influence into his marriage. Um, but it's not just a, you know, we know we talk about it's a lovely story and stuff, but and we think, oh, the Queen must love him so much. But actually, I think about how much he must have loved her as well. Um, he actually wrote to the Queen Mother um, not long before the wedding, saying that he had fallen in love completely and unreservedly. Uh, that is just oh, that's such a beautiful sentiment. <laughs> um, but obviously, this is post-Second World War Britain. There were some concerns about... Philip's relations as Kate has already mentioned with his sisters and his connections you know with his through his father with the German elements and what what you know his German relations is he going to be accepted as a member of the royal household is he going to be accepted by the British public um as almost as soon as he became engaged to Elizabeth he was pretty certain in that he was going to do what he could to show that he's you know he's willing to to, to take that away and, and that's not a part of him anymore he drops his he renounces his greek and danish royal titles he becomes a naturalized british citizen and of course as we know takes the surname of mountbatten from his uh, maternal grandparents um he is then in the on the eve of the wedding he has the titles of duke of edinburgh earl of merioneth and baron greenwich conferred upon him by the king again then another little 
tidbit, which again shows his level of, I think, just pure commitment to the Queen. His wedding day was also the day that he gave up smoking, <laughs> which is a decision that he made because Elizabeth absolutely abhorred smoking because, as we know, her father was a very strong cigarette smoker and there's no doubt was a contributing factor to his poor health and the way that he died, which is very awful. If you read about it, it's a, he, he must have really suffered. So he actually gives up smoking for Elizabeth as well, which is, you know, t- telling a sailor to stop smoking you know it's like any anyone in the armed forces it's like uh, what telling anyone to stop smoking in the 40s 50s 60s absolutely. <laughs> yeah absolutely and so we get to the wedding day itself takes place at westminster abbey on the 20th of november 1947 you know we know that the queen has to save up her ration ration coupons to get her silk for her wedding dress you know it's a very it, it is still in keeping with the time but trying to be the royal event you know this is the heir to the throne, the wedding does have to have an element of, you know, there's a standard to uphold. Um, so there's there's 2,000 guests at this wedding, including lots of royalty from across Europe and, and so on. But it, it doesn't go off without any incident. And I mean, I think if you, you're a person who can say that something didn't go wrong at your wedding, I'd be a little concerned. Like something goes wrong at everyone's wedding, but it really went wrong for this one. Um, Elizabeth's tiara snapped on the morning of the wedding. Um, uh, Philip had been stopped the day before in London and almost arrested for speeding. Um, <laughs> but he did re- give a really, really good answer. He was on his way to the rehearsal dinner and he was speeding, but he was stopped by the police officer. And he reportedly said at the time, I'm sorry, officer, but I've got an appointment with the Archbishop of Canterbury. <laughs> <laughs> Of course he's got one. He's getting married tomorrow. Um, at their wedding breakfast after after the ceremony, King George VI described the union as a genuine romance. Our daughter is marrying the man she loves, he said. Meanwhile, the former Prime Minister, Winston Churchill, hailed the event as a flash of colour on the hard road we have to travel, referring, of course, to the fact this is a Britain just coming out of a six-year-long war economy destroyed rationing still happening this really would have been one of those spectacular moments that really brought the nation together okay so after the wedding they obviously leave to go on to their honeymoon they spend some time at broadlands in hampshire um and elizabeth does actually keep in communication with her family throughout the honeymoon and she does write to her parents um, that she, and these are her own words that she and her new husband behave as though we'd belonged to each other for years. Philip is an angel. And you know, they have those first few years, 1947 to 1952, a fairly, fairly, how normal can you have a life when you're heir to the throne? But they have some sort of a semblance of a life together as a married couple. Um, they obviously start to have their family. Um, but what they do is they actually move around as well. So in between 1949 and 1951, Prince Philip is still in the Navy and he's actually stationed in Malta. So they go and live in Malta on and off um, throughout those two years. They come back to the UK and, and to Britain and, and back to Malta. Um, they live in a villa on the island and Elizabeth lives some sort of a life of just as a naval wife. She's not the future queen. She is the wife of a naval officer. 
which must have been completely different to whatever what they had both had prior and what they then would have going forward. Um, they obviously enjoyed their time uh, in Malta a lot because for their 60th wedding anniversary in 2007, Prince Philip took the Queen back to Malta um, for like their wedding anniversary present, which I just think is so adorable. Um, and they also went back to Broadlands as well, where they'd spent um, their wedding night in the first part of their honeymoon. And of course, as we know, they obviously loved each other because four children came out of it. <laughs> you know, there's very, very evident um, side of affection there. We've obviously got the first child, Charles, being born almost a year to the day after they get married. They get married on the 10th of November, 47. And Charles is born on the 14th of November, 1948. Um, he is also now the longest serving heir apparent in British history. Um, we've then got three more children. Obviously, we've got Princess Anne, Prince Andrew, and of course, then Prince Edward bringing up the rear. And the birth of these four children and then Elizabeth's succession to the throne in 1952 brings about with it a discussion. And that's a discussion on the family surname. Now, inherently, even still today, you know, we're still quite, we're quite modern, forward thinking. A lot of people, a lot of women still, or relationships whoever will take one surname i did it charlie did it mrs mrs o'connell did it you know it's there's usually that there's a pattern which is followed but obviously how can you have a queen who is of the house of windsor how can she become a mountbatten how the house cannot become the house of mountbatten and this was a discussion that needed to be had um, as we know, Phil, as we've said, Philip had his moments of, you know, frustration, I'm sure, in all of this, because um, it does write in one of his biographies that was done of him. He once privately complained, um, I am nothing but a bloody amoeba. I am the only man in the country not allowed to give his name to his own children, um, which obviously is a different now. But at that time in the 40s and the 50s, that's very important for, you know, to pass on the family name and what have you. So eventually, in 1960, um, a decision is made by the Privy Council ensuring that Mountbatten-Windsor would be the surname of Elizabeth and Philip's male line descendants. But the royal house itself would still stay as the House of Windsor. So a bit of a compromise there, which is what every relationship's about at the end of the day. A bit of compromise. Um Obviously, as I've tried to briefly, I'll have to come back a little bit. Um, you know, Philip has been there throughout so many key moments of Elizabeth's life. And one of those ones being the death of her father in 1952. Um, you know, they were in Kenya at the time at the Sagana Lodge. Um, the, the king, King George, had actually waved them off at the airport. And that was the last time he was seen in public. He he was found, unfortunately, passed away in his bed six days later. Um, but they had gone to Kenya on the way to doing a trip to Australia and New Zealand. And it was actually Prince Philip who broke the news to Elizabeth, who was just 25 years old. And, you know, we've all lost people close to us. But to think at 25 years old, not only are you dealing with the loss of your father at a young age, he was only 56, but also to be dealing in the same thread that you are now the monarch of a nation. That must have been an absolutely, just completely overwhelming moment for her. And I really think 
there's things that we won't ever know about how much of a, a support he would have been at that time, how vital he would have been to her at that time, leaving Kenya, coming back to the UK. As, as Charlie said, their roles have now changed. He's now the consort. But privately, what what must those moments have been like for the two of them together? As we said, Elizabeth ascends to the throne, and we obviously have the coronation in June 1953. Um, and... I know that Charlie's referenced it as well as being her liege man of life and limb. And we know that that's what's said as the nobility, but he is the first in line to say that as her husband. And if you watch the footage um, and he kisses her cheek as well after he rises and just kiss, and it just, it just, it just seemed like such a, a moment of great fanfare, but just that such that tender moment in that tiny tender moment in that whole grand gesture just oh breathe oh. Beth, breathe i love it all so much <laughs> i can't take it anymore oh. Beth, i can't take it Beth i'm not charlie and I, me and zach are gonna yak in a minute but everybody <laughs> else in the room is completely and utterly written with this. i love it like, so obviously as well ascending to the throne means that elizabeth takes on royal duties that she has spent years of her life preparing for yes you know we Obviously, it had been her uncle who was supposed to be the monarch, but when the the abdication happened, thank you for that uh, demonstration, Alex. <laughs> but when the abdication happens, her father and herself are thrust into this life of you are now the, the head of state, and she's had to be tutored, and her life has changed. But she's been preparing for it. Philip has to adjust to the role of being his wife's consort, Um even just little things like if you go back, I didn't notice this until I read this and then went back and looked at it. But he walks a few steps behind her when they're on public engagements together because he is the consort, which I, I didn't I didn't realise until I then actually went and watched some footage and went, hang on. Yeah, he, he is. He's walking behind her. Um, and, you know, this this would have been a culture shock. He did admit at time uh, later on in life, he said, I thought I was going to have a career in the Navy, but it became obvious there was no hope. There was no choice. It just happened. You have to make compromises. That's life. I accepted it. So, you know, and obviously Charlie has talked about his role as a consort, so I don't really need to do that. But so I'm just going to try and start to bring everything together. This whole, this 70 years, 73 years of marriage. Um, it's the longest of any British sovereign, surpassing that of George III and Queen Charlotte by more than 13 years. Um, Lord Charteris, who was a private secretary to the Queen at one point in her life, once said, Prince Philip is the only man in the world who treats the Queen simply as another human being. He's the only man who can. Strange as it may seem, I believe she values that. And the Queen and Prince Philip have had a relationship that stood the test of time, a relationship filled with love and devotion. Side by side, they've travelled all over the world, from Australia to America, Africa, India, flying the flag for the Commonwealth. They've shared total commitment to their duties and service, and they've always had each other to lighten the bird of public put the burden of public life with a little bit of laughter. Nothing, nothing tickled them more than a ceremonial mishap, and it's so lovely to watch footage of them together and giggling at something that's gone wrong. 
Um, in private, he had pet names for her. He called her Lilibet, which was a, obviously one of her famous nicknames from her childhood. And he even he called her Darling or even Sausage as well. And it's said that they loved just sitting together on the t- on the sofa while having a television supper together. I could try and sum up what they meant to each other, but I think the Queen has summed it up personally in the last few days when she has said his passing has left a huge void in her life. The Queen and Prince Philip were wholly committed to each other, their family and their roles of Queen, consort and what that meant to the rest of the world. And I think that is something that cannot be forgotten. Prince Philip meant a great deal to a lot of people, personally and from afar. So I'm getting a bit choked up. Um, I'll end my contribution here with words from the person who knew him best, Queen Elizabeth. Oh, God. Right. Okay. (laughs) While celebrating their golden wedding anniversary in 1997, Elizabeth lauded Philip as this. He is someone who doesn't take easily to compliments, but he has, quite simply, been my strength and stay all these years. And I and his whole family and this and many other countries owe him a debt greater than he would ever claim or that we shall ever know. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Yeah, that was wonderful, Ben. Oh, no, I'm not, I'm not going to be cynical. I'm not going to be cynical. I think he really has. Can you imagine knowing someone for 80 years and then being your everything for 75 years and then one day they're not there anymore? And like, apparently, like, everything at the end was make sure they don't push her too hard, look after your mother, like, and his his instructions leaving to to Charles and I know Clive will talk about this later on because Clive and I were talking before you lot got here about I think he would have been pleased that when he did leave us he was still fully of sound mind and able to tee everything up um there was no mental decline so there was a a a way in which everything from the funeral down to how he wants them to look after her now and make sure that she's okay is just, he really did 
when he when he decided it wasn't about him and about his naval career and everything. And don't get me wrong, anyone who's got grandparents knows that by the time you get to 50 years, you do each other's heads in. I mean, you you literally want to throttle each other sometimes. Um, so, <laughs> yes, it is like oh. a Disney film, Beth, but also as well, this is 73 years of hard work at a marriage as well in challenging conditions. And are you all right, Beth? <laughs> Oh. <laughs> remind me of my own grandma and granddad <laughs> that's incredible do you think i mean listening to listening to the story you just can't help but feel the the parallels and the future echoes that making them wait before they got married do you think it was almost giving philip an out if he wanted an out because you're not just getting married to a girl here you're getting married to an entire country and all the scrutiny and all the responsibility and everything well we're at Bertie now we're in my wheelhouse and he (laughs) wanted to make sure that whoever was taking up the mantle of looking after his baby Lilibet was going to do it right and I think he wanted to know that it was the right man and I don't think she could have done any better no. Nobody's perfect. And yes, he could be a sod, but he was her sod. And he has, like you say, stood by her for seven and a half decades, mm. officially and unofficially. And yeah, it's going to be a very different world for her. Very sad, mm. different world for her. Right. Okay. Uh, we're going to replenish our glasses, give Beth a chance to compose herself and Charlie. And actually, I think <laughs> Meredith's pretty much ready to go as well at one point there with the last quote. Um, so let's get another drink and then we'll move on to talk about some more about because he wasn't all about supporting his wife. He had a mind of his own and he had his own role that he carved out. And he's left a legacy entirely of his own as well that isn't just about playing second fiddle to the Queen. So I think we'll come back and we'll talk some more about what he did. OK, we're back. We have more drinks. Uh, we're being quite civilised for us, actually, because this is awake. Um, but I like to think we're... I feel like we're adding a new layer to his personality with every person we talk to. So who do you want to go to next, Charlie? Uh, oh, okay. Who should we go to next? Well, I was thinking we'd go one way. Let's, let's keep, let's go up a little bit after, after, you know, the emotion of Beth. Let's have some humor. Do you want some comic relief? A little bit of comic relief in there. Should we go to Mr. Clive O'Connell and see what he's got for us? Because Prince Philip was famed for for the hilarity of his comments. Sometimes (laughs) it's because they were inappropriate, which let's be honest, if you're 99 years old, um, some of the stuff you come out with is going to be outdated and it's going to make your relatives cringe. Uh, I don't (laughs) think there was ever any meanness or vindictive or underlying prejudice behind it. It's just who he was. And at 99, I think you should be able to say whatever the hell you want. I think arguably once you get past 70, I think people have to make allowances for the fact that you're just old and you can say what you want. So for mm-hmm. that's nearly th- three decades of Prince Philip, Philip at his finest. Uh, Clive, who is, do you know what I do want to say? Clive is, is a rampant lefty and an anti-monarchist, but he's really gone into the spirit. He said he's completely destroyed his street cred by coming on tonight, but he wanted to sort of remember Prince Philip as well. Uh, so he's put his, his, uh, Republican tendencies to one side to be with us tonight, haven't you, Clive? Well, can I just say that I think 70 is a bit of a harsh cut-off date. Can we bring it down seven years so I can say what the hell I want? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, sure that's what you Special dispensation. Okay. 
<laughs> right. Can I start with a disclaimer? I'm not a royalist. That said, my republicanism is not born out of malice towards any individuals, but out of a disagreement with the institution. Therefore, please do not take what I have to say as a personal attack on a man who has died and whose family mourn his passing, nor as an endorsement of the system. In his tribute to his grandfather, Prince Harry said that Prince Philip was a master of the barbecue, legend of the banter, and cheeky right to the end. I don't propose to dwell on his culinary talents, but instead to look at his banter and cheekiness, banter and cheekiness that is that is to some demonstrated as a magnificent sense of humour, and to others was bants or gaffs or rudeness, and sometimes misogyny, sexism and even racism were just plain nasty. I will not judge. I will leave the judgment to you, the listener, or to God. I will give you examples of the wit or proneness to placing his foot firmly in his mouth and leave you to decide whether to laugh or to stand aghast in horror or both. Now, of course, we have no idea of how Prince Philip spoke. He was born but lived very briefly in Greece, went to Denmark and then to school in Germany before moving to Scotland to complete his education and joined the Navy and sailed all over the place before returning to London, Windsor, Norfolk and Scotland, as well as travelling again all over the place. So I suspect that it is reasonable to suppose that he spoke with a Cockney accent. Paulina, <laughs> with her MLE, multicultural London, London English accent, tells me with my slight RP, received pronunciation accent, that I can't do Cockney, I will try my best. I had thought of breaking my selected quotations down into categories based upon the people, places or ideas that Prince Philip chose to insult. A good number, however, cross over into so many different categories that I suspect it is as well to throw it all out there in some random order. So here goes. On marriage. When a man opens a car door for his wife, it's either a new car or a new wife. His family were not immune. On the Duke and Duchess of York's house in Sunning Hill Park, it looks like a tart's bedroom. To a 24-year-old woman who informed him that she worked in a nightclub. Oh, what? A strip club? To a mayor who used a mobility scooter. Have you run over anybody? On British women. British women can't cook. Showing how in touch he was at a time of recession. Everybody was saying we must have more leisure. Now, now they are complaining they're unemployed. In touch with the plight of a Caribbean hospital worker. You have mosquitoes. I have the press. Charming his hosts in China. If it has four legs and not and it's not a chair, has wings and it's not an aeroplane, or swims and it's not a submarine, the Cantonese will eat it. To a Briton in Budapest, you can't have been here that long, you haven't got a pot belly. To a British student in Papua New Guinea, you managed not to get eaten then? To a Cayman Islander, aren't most of you descended from pirates? To a Kenyan wo woman bearing a gift, you are a woman, aren't you? To the president of Nigeria who appeared in national dress. You look like you're ready for bed. To a Filipina nurse in Luton. The Philippines must be half empty as you're all here running the, the NHS. To the multi-ethnic dance group Diversity. Are you all one family? 
Tumalala Yousafzai, Nobel laureate who survived a Taliban assassination attempt for campaigning for female education. Children go to school because their parents don't want them in the ass. To deaf people standing close to a steel band. Deaf? If you're near there, no wonder you're deaf. Dead to a kid who wanted to be an astronaut. Well, you'll never fly in it. You're too fat to be an astronaut. To German Chancellor Kohl, forgetting that there had been a constitutional change in 1945. Phil Common, Herr Reichschancellor, about Scots people to a Scottish driving instructor. How do you keep the natives off the booze long enough to get them through the test? And finally, although spoken some years ago, a prescient statement. I just wondered what it would be like to be reincarnated as an animal whose species had been so reduced in numbers that it was in danger of extinction. What would its feelings be? Feelings towards the human species whose population explosion has denied it somewhere to exist. I must confess that I'm tempted to ask for reincarnation as a particularly deadly virus. There are many others, but my abilities to hold this accent any longer is at an end. So there you have it. A man of infinite wit, a product of a bygone age, or a man out of touch. I'll let you decide. <laughs> definitely, definitely a product of a bygone age. I think we can all appreciate that. Uh, there must have, can you, like, we talked about how many decades they were together. There must have been, uh, you know, a wife has always got that look for her husband that says, shut up. You know, that thing you do that I hate with voice <laughs> right now. She must have many of those looks that were reserved for moments when he put his foot in it like that. But didn't he reserve most of his spe most spectacular efforts for when he was on his own? Yeah, <laughs> I think so. Yeah, off the leash. Well, yeah, if, you, if you're going to be recorded as much as Prince Philip will have been recorded and have the kind of personality that he had and be a product of that generation and all of the above and all of these things, it just, it gives you so much material, so much fodder. And yet so much of that makes you cringe, but it's, it's nothing. I'm not, I'm going to hold my hands up. It's nothing my grandparents wouldn't have said. Um, you cringe. And it's, it's meant in, it sounds awful to say, but it's, it's always meant in a nice way or. Uh, do you know what? I, I no think, malice. well, if it was remotely vindictive, would it not be aimed at one or a couple of groups? It's everyone. Yes. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. If yeah. he can find something inappropriate <laughs> to say to anybody, he will find yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> he, was, he was an equal opportunity offender. Yes. Yeah. It's <laughs> what we're saying. No, I think, like you say, uh, a product of a bygone age um, and a very individual upbringing as well. Like like you say, uh, he he grew up a nomad. He didn't have a home, let alone a home country um, mm. growing up. So I don't think he's sort of predisposed to actually disliking people. Um, but my God, could he put his foot in it? Merrin, as someone who does PR, would you have wanted to be in <laughs> Philip? Not particularly, no. <laughs> <laughs> Not unless you were equipped with a, a cattle prod. Oh my goodness. Salary to match it. <laughs> Can yeah. you imagine if Prince Philip had had Twitter? 
There were some parody accounts, but yeah, that would have been fun. <laughs> but I imagine his response was "fuck Twitter," which <laughs> I'd think less of him if it wasn't. To be honest, should we talk about some more about serious stuff about his legacy? Uh, we mentioned, didn't we, before the break about um, the amount of work he did in his own name as well as supporting the Queen. So, should we go to Zach? Yes, good idea. So we have heard a lot tonight about the complexity of the Duke of Edinburgh's life and legacy from his war service to his international engagements, popular perceptions of him, and even his Cockney accent. I mean, who knew that he hid it so well? I know some of our listeners may not be fans of the royal family and may even have reservations about the purpose that they serve. That's a debate for another day and another podcast. But this evening, I want to dwell on what is unquestionably the single greatest area within which the royals and the Duke of Edinburgh in particular do immeasurable good, their charity work. Prince Philip was involved in 992 charitable organisations over the course of his life. That's literally 10 charities for every year that he lived. He made, as we've heard already, more than 22 thousand solo public appearances in support of charities and causes, raising their profile and bringing increased media attention to their work. You could even make the argument that Philip coming out with a gaffe at an event for a charity that you ran was actually a blessing in disguise because it would mean that your cause was plastered over the next 24 hours of news headlines. I'm not going to sit here and list list all of the organisations that he was involved in, But I do want to dwell on a few which he was particularly active in and which reflect the diversity of his interests. Firstly, on the international stage, Philip didn't confine himself to initiatives in the UK. He took a global approach, not just being interested in the affairs of the Commonwealth, but also showing a concern for the degradation of the environment long before it was a mainstream concern. In 1961, he founded the WWF or World Wildlife Fund, as it was known then, later renamed Worldwide Fund for Nature, with Prince Bernard of the Netherlands, a man who he felt particular affinity to uh, because Bernard was also a prince consort. Philip served as president of the UK branch of the WWF and then served as international president between 81 and 96, at which point he became president emeritus. Active in over 100 countries, the WWF helps to protect endangered species restore damaged habitats and encourage sustainable methods of agriculture and fishing. Boasting five million supporters worldwide, its work has obviously become vital due to the growing awareness of the climate emergency, and it plays a key role in working with governments to help facilitate a greener future. To have had that vision 60 years ago and to start doing something about it back then is pretty remarkable. And the reason, in part, not by no means exclusively, but in part for the WWF's success, is the fact that it had people like Philip flying the flag way, way back at a time when nobody was really talking actively about environmental issues, apart from maybe David Attenborough. We don't know the cause of the Duke's death, though we did hear that he had a heart procedure a few weeks before he died. And it's kind of apt, therefore, that he was also a patron of the British Heart Foundation for 59 years. In that capacity, he was involved in fundraising and attending events and opening ceremonies, again, raising the organisation's profile. He had also been a patron of Book Aid since 1966, something which I think most people in the room 
have probably known of and, and felt very fondly about for a long time. The charity that supports book donations in developing countries to help with encouraging reading and fostering education in the process, using it ultimately as a potential route out of poverty. A similar commitment to young people was visible in his patronage of Plan International, an organisation which also uses education as a way of improving the life chances of children growing up in poverty in the developing world and protecting them from abuse. But what he is perhaps most famous for is his role in establishing the Duke of Edinburgh Award Scheme, or DOV. Set up in 1956 by the Prince and named obviously after him, today there are around 300,000 people doing the DOV scheme around the world at any one time. What does it do? Well, Philip had an interesting way of describing it. The scheme is not a cure, it's a preventative. Once you have got a soccer hooligan, you've got a soccer hooligan, and someone is going to have to try and cure him of that. The purpose of the scheme is basically to try and catch people while they are moderately civilised still, and keep them that way. Setting aside everyone's disappointment that I didn't attempt to do that in a Cockney accent, but then nobody can do it as well as Clive, and setting aside the fact that many of us apparently are only moderately civilised, the DOV was a demonstration of the Duke's commitment to supporting young people. Open to 14 to 24 year olds, the scheme revolves around a series of challenges that promote supporting the community environment, developing skills and training for and completing an expedition. It's an awful phrase, but essentially it was and still is about character building, going into schools, equipping young people with skills that they could use throughout their life. Literally millions of people have participated and benefited from it over the years. There are also, amongst a whole multitude of uh, armed forces, charities, a number of unusual organisations on the list that Philip supported. The Cartoon Museum, the Debating Club, the Speculative Society and the Royal Guild of St Sebastian in Bruges. Ultimately, though, whatever you think about Philip, it's difficult to ignore the fact that he was a man with an obvious dedication and genuine passion for public service. If one of the measures by which we judge our lives is on whether we did what was reasonably within our means to make the world a better place, then no doubt the Duke of Edinburgh's was a life well lived. Absolutely. Well done. And thank you, Zach. Do you know what I love as well? Because I can say this without feeling bad, because knowing that any charity that got recognition or any kind of endorsement from him would have done really well for themselves. And that makes me happy. But I really hope that it got down to some point about the fact that oh, like they had a really good bar or it was always a good night out to go and hang with <laughs> some of those lesser known ones. I hope there were some motivations in there that would have made us smile. Uh, but they really were spread across, weren't they? And I think that was probably just a fraction of the ones that he was actually asked to get involved in as well, because it is relentless, uh, the amount of people that want a piece of you when you're in his position. Um, Charlie, what do you make of his charitable efforts? Uh, you know, I mean, the, obviously the D of E is, is something that, he will be remembered for for ages even though it still gives me a little bit of a cold shudder being not a very athletic child um it was it was shall we say not for me but Charles gets a lot of a lot of credit for his environmental work and his environmental stance and his activism but it's so it's remarkable when you actually take it back and realize it was his father it was the Duke of Edinburgh who funded who 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 really supported 
the WWF. And I get confused every time because I, I always think you're talking about the wrestling. But um <laughs> no, I know you kids who have done that. The, the WWF is the one with the panda on the logo. It, it's the pandas, not Hulk Hogan. It's exactly. easy to remember. Easy to remember. confused. <laughs> I know a few kids from working class backgrounds that have gone all the way through to their gold Duke of Edinburgh stuff and it has immeasurably improved their education and made them more um, likely to get a decent university spot and it's given them leadership skills and opportunities that they never would have had if it wasn't for the scheme as well. So it really is, um, especially for those kids whose parents don't have a lot of money, it's yeah. a really good inclusive thing for them to get involved in as well. And it's the new experiences element. I mean, I see people on social media who post about, you know, they went to certain places that they only went to for the first time and they only discovered because they went there on a DV expedition. And it was about giving people that opportunity because, like you say, not everybody had that. And yes, OK, I, I use the, um, the reference of soccer hooligans and so on. But it was about reaching people who wouldn't have had those life chances and, and hopefully kind of changing their their perception of the world in the process. It's the idea that young people, you know, the youth don't have anything to do and there's nothing provided for them. So they get into trouble. And it's, it's an, it's an old fashioned sentiment, but it's, it does, it does make sense. The idea that it gave them, gave them purpose and something to do. And that, that's what he was talking about was getting, getting kids involved and giving them opportunities. So. Absolutely. And we've had a chuckle with Clive about some of the nonsense he came out with. Um, but I think we should finish with Merrin because Merrin's going to talk about the way that we've perceived him um, as a country and as a nation, as people in all that he's been doing and how well she thinks we understood him, I think. So Merrin, where do you go with this? Where do we go with this? Well, let's start by going to the other side of the world. It is a popular misconception that cargo cult tribes of Vanuatu worshipped Prince Philip as an everlasting god or a deity. The tabloid shorthand conveyed a sense of meaning, awe and respect, but not the truth. The truth is, the villagers of Yakel and Wanenen believed that Philip was born on the island of Tana, that a great spirit inhabited his body, and that he left just before the Second World War to seek his fortune, travelling far and wide until he met, wooed, and wed a most powerful woman. Quite simply, he is one of them, but he is above them all. That is their perception of the prince. The media's perception of the prince has always been a little bit more ambivalent, and so too has ours. Things started well enough. The Crown's depiction of royal reporters and photographers being deferential. The news of his father-in-law's passing is probably not that far from the truth. At the outset, a story was a story, but to some degree, reportage and respect still went hand in hand as far as the monarchy went. Indeed, the Stagnite, Prince Philip Stagnite, to, just before getting married, it was an absolute hoot. Everyone was on side. The location, yes, it had been leaked. But when one of the journalists outside the Dorchester phoned through to ask if the Daily Mail might take a photograph of Mountbatten and the other shipmates, as it was such an historic naval occasion... Philip agreed. He even took one of the photographer's cameras, pushed them all onto a settee and insisted on taking a great photograph. You've had your fun, he said. Now let me have a go. There was an instant rapport. However, for almost a decade afterwards, 
there was an undercurrent of uncertainty as to how the broadsheet from the red tops should position the husband of the queen. This was all new to him, to her, to us, to the media, to the family and to the concept of monarchy itself. People used to come to me and ask me what to do, said Philip. After the coronation, everything changed. If I asked someone, what do you expect me to do? They just looked blank. On a tour of Australia, he met a man who introduced his wife as a doctor of philosophy. She's far more important than I am, he told Philip. Yes, Philip replied. We have that trouble in our family too. What didn't help was that for almost 10 years after the coronation, de Brett still referred to him as a prince, while Burke's peerage did not. And Fleet Street was keen to run with uncertainty. After all, uncertainty gives editors immense room for manoeuvre. Philip was revered and then reviled, castigated on one page and congratulated on the next, mocked, managed and made to look guilty of being human. He was treated with both suspicion and respect, an intrinsically difficult combination. The man was incredibly competent and his service record stood for itself. But was he really a good man? He revolutionised the relationship between media and monarchy. He pushed the royal family. He had to push the royal family into the modern age by embracing television and modern media. As the chair of the committee organising his wife's coronation, and there's something you don't say every day, he overruled the very stern views of the then Prime Minister Churchill and the Archbishop of Canterbury, Geoffrey Fisher, who was certain that heinous technology de television would destroy the majesty of the occasion. However, the televised coronation led to an exponential increase in the number of TV sets in the UK, as had his father-in-law's funeral and a royal ratings hit. In contrast, the subsequent two hours of coverage entitled Royal Family in March 1968 was not quite the same success. Although a common legal argument of broadcasters and the paparazzi is that public figures once having given cooperation to the media cannot then expect to withdraw it, the palace cannily imposed crown copyright on that film and broadcast rights eventually were withdrawn, reportedly on Philip's insistence. This has always been a fluid relationship. Push me, pull you, one day to the next. Journalists wrote stories that lead us, that led us, to believe he was on the one hand searching for faith and a role in society, and then on the other that his natural restlessness, almost polymath, was being applied to great effect in moving both church and monarchy into the 20th and then 21st centuries. From the Guardian to the Glasgow Gazette, from the Sun to the Standard, the Mirror to the Mail and the Manchester Herald, we have seen him contemporaneously portrayed as struggling with his position, pushing back against the confines of family life, trying hard to keep his promises before God, a man, a husband like any other in that vein. And during the 60s in particular, their lives, his in particular, was under scrutiny. The press, the press conjectured openly as to whether he was living up to marital expectations. The Naked Waiter is a story in its own right. Philip and his equerry Michael Parker used to pop out of the palace for evenings with other royal acquaintances. And the royal staff soon got used to these expeditions. Murgatroyd and Winterbottom, they would say, have popped out for a stroll. The Thursday Club never made it to the front page, but the press challenged his fidelity and his temperament constantly, intimating dalliances with more than one woman. They were unsure of what felt like an esoteric interest in the arts and, 
as accent in the environment in particular to start with. His off-duty photographic expeditions on the Royal Yacht Britannia have yet to be paralleled. He has been well lauded for having a lifelong passion for wildlife, and the media adored his photogenic work as a pivotal patron of the World Wildlife Fund. He understood the use of the media as a platform, and he used them to promote conservation issues at the highest government and corporate levels. He dedicated his voice through the media, positioning and influencing campaigns to raise awareness and funds. They understood his interest in science and technology less. This is a man who who drove a black cab for anonymity, but also then sought column inches when he had one of the first electric vehicles in the company in, in the country. Philip knew there was nothing he could do about any, any of the negative press. Diligence and duty dulling the senses, perhaps, he did choose to ignore most of it. Accepting the freedom of the City of London in 1948, he spoke for himself and what he called other followers with trademark modesty. Our only distinction as a family, he said, is that we, we do what we are told to do to the very best of our ability and we keep on doing it. Self-deprecation, of course, was one of his famous traits. He was the world's most experienced plaque unveiler. There are several videos of him saying that at events. And he constantly did himself down, shrugging as to why anyone would want to hear him speak. I have very little experience of self-government, he told one audience. I am one of the most governed people you could meet. He's on record as being reluctant to talk about his own achievements. I couldn't care less, he would say when he asked when he was asked if he thought he was successful in a campaign or in pursuing some ambition. I am simply a discredited Balkan prince of no particular merit or distinction. Reported or not, he knew everything that he said would be reported, and most speeches were a dull formality that had to be got through. He wrote them himself in what he in the early days viewed as being an advanced piece of technology known as a word processor. And he was happy to have his audience have a laugh at his expense, the press too. He did want to open up our perceptions of the monarchy. He did want to modernise. The portrayals that we've seen most recently through Netflix are not far from the truth in some cases. When someone supports 992 charitable causes, however, that in itself is an uncomfortable concept. It is more than I could do. I am confident it is more than we could all do. He knew that whatever he did, he was going to be feeding the media's perception of a man committed to many causes in addition to his main job, supporting the Queen as she did her duty to the concept of monarchy and constitution and for her people. In return in 1948, as guest of honour at the 60th birthday dinner of the Foreign Press Association, he described journalists as the people's ambassadors. There was a mutual respect, but he then added under his breath, I just wish the people didn't want to know quite so much. When he was asked if he felt the press had been unfair to him or misrepresented him over the years, he said, I suppose so, yes, occasionally, but I think the media has its own agenda and that's it. We just have to live with it. We don't have any sway. We don't have any position. We don't have any influence. He did not enjoy their company. At a reception held at Windsor Castle to mark the Queen's Golden Jubilee, he was on top form, however. Who are you? He demanded of Simon Kellner, the editor-in-chief of The Independent. I'm Simon Kellner. I'm the editor-in-chief of The Independent, was the reply. What are you doing here, said the Duke. You invited me, came Kellner's reply. Philip looked at his aide and said, you didn't have to come, did you? 
The media have turned us into a soap opera, he grumbled, referring to them on more than one occasion as the reptiles, capital T, capital R. And at a parliamentary press gallery event as a guest of honour in 1956, he was asked for his views on journalists in general. He said, it is very tempting to give you my views on journalists in general, but I think I had better wait until I get a bit older. And then, conversely, two photographers out scouting for better locations around Balmoral in the late 60s were rather surprised to see a familiar Land Rover approaching them. The window wound down. Are you guys off duty? Philip asked, mistaking two photographers for policemen. Can you help me launch the boat? The boat was on a trailer behind the Land Rover. They agreed, but they made sure the Duke was aware that they were sun photographers. He didn't worry. He didn't bat an eyelid. He said, righto. They helped him get the boat into the water. And then a couple of minutes later, Philip called from the boat. I'll get some fish in a while. Do you want to hang around and get some shots of me pulling them out of the water? He played the game. He understood the game was to be played and he did play it well. He understood what it meant to be keeping up appearances all the time. When he visited Japan in service as the Duke of Edinburgh, he was asked if it was his first time to the islands. And in an interview many years later, he confided, I did have to be slightly evasive as I didn't want to mention the circumstances under which I had been there the first time. In one breath, the press showed him to be crude, rude, pompous and rude. A man who didn't care about offending the PC brigade. In the next newspaper on the same newsstand, Another journo's account would be of something that was funny, sharp-witted, audacious, and a man who didn't care about defending the PC Brigade, but in both respects, admirable. The royal family does not offer you friendship, said James Callaghan, but it does offer you friendliness. And no matter which reporter you talked to or which gap was being reported in a Cockney accent or otherwise, there was always respect. In their bylines, they may have taken differing views, warp and weft of salacious stories, witcher aside. But in pursuit of readership numbers, they agreed no one could have stood by the Queen's side better equipped in mind and heart and disposition to be her counsellor and consort. This was a man born into an unstable family life and yet destined to become a stable point in his wife's role and remit. He was the stable companion that perhaps we all need. Indeed, later in life, he told the press that his main job was to support Elizabeth in her role as monarch. He adjusted to a role that involved shaping the firm, nurturing it as a dynamic, involved and responsive institution that could and would and should address itself to some of the problems of contemporary British society. He made that role his own and he encouraged his family to adapt. Much has been made of the fact that Philip will not travel in a hearse, but in a Land Rover, a British legend, an icon modified to a unique design. The TD5 130 chassis cab with an open rear top section, top rear section even, will carry the Duke's coffin as per his explicit specifications. What is not reported quite so much is the fact that the Earl Mountbatten of Burma's coffin was also conveyed from a funeral at an abbey in a Land Rover. They look very similar, those two vehicles. Adaptation in pursuit of fulfilment of specific duty with humility. Fleet Street has a bottom drawer of obituaries to hand for the great and the good, the rogues and the royals. Those narratives are added to and amended as time goes by. The media, too, adapts. Mourning in Vanuatu lasts 101 days. 
It is likely they will transfer veneration to Prince Charles, who visited in 2018 and did meet with some of the tribal leaders. While they may not be watching the funeral take place, there is no doubt the elders will be kept abreast of the ceremony at some point with photographs and copious press coverage of the event. Those photographs will show a cluster of medals that have been sewn to velvet pillows, chosen by Philip to honour his own service and service record. In order, as the most common 17 were pinned to his left breast, they started with the Croix de Guerre with Palm, 1948, which was given to a man who fought with the Allies against Axis nations during the Second World War. But they culminate with the recognition of a life spent in devotion to a country and as a consort with the Queen's Service Order. Motives, symbols and talismans, all signs of a life led in duty and service. It will take time before the villagers in Vanuatu find a sign that confirms how their perceptions should change now and in whom their sense of kinship should reside. However, they are resolute that Philip's spirit and legacy lives on. And as a funeral takes place and family grieves, the unfortunate reality is that we are all living our lives through the modern lens of social media, snippets from BuzzFeed for insights into other people's lives, and we entertain ourselves in DMs and chat forums and sidebars of shame. We will be watching funeral events unfold through the same medium that Philip himself championed at his wife's coronation. But in line with his wishes, his funeral will be televised by modern royal standards as minimally as possible. It is telling, perhaps, that over eight decades he went from not being able to get enough airtime to not wanting any. The more exposed the monarchy has become, perhaps the more valuable their privacy is. Philip understood the need for change when he took on the role. Society is changing and the royal family has changed. Philip was also a man who spent his whole life adapting that life to public service and to serve as liege man of life and limb. I like to think that it is not simply a period now in which we will mourn the member of the royal family who has died through the action of commemoration made possible by that media, but it is also a time to look back at all the key events in his life and to think about where we and our families have been at some of those key moments. Unfortunately, while monarchy does symbolise everlasting permanence, monarchy cannot guarantee immortality. But he will never be forgotten, and I do hope that the media allows him to rest in peace. Well done, Merrin. Applause from around the room. What a way to finish, Charlie. Oh, that was just beautiful. Thank you so much, Merrin. Charlie's <laughs> like, that's exactly what I wanted. <laughs> it's so, no, I, I think that, you know, how how we perceive any public figure is subject to um, what's a great story, what sells the newspaper and what keeps people interested. And Philip has been around for so long. <laughs> it did feel like he would, he would never, never not be here. Um, so he has run the run the gauntlet of being loved and being despised and being this and being that even in the same day yeah it's not, not possible to be around that long and not experience both extremes is it no not at all not at all 
Marcus couldn't make it tonight, but he did have this one anecdote that he wanted us to read out, which I think is a really good way to end. Um, and it's with regard to an event at Buckingham Palace. So paralysed by an IRA, the IRA bomb at Brighton, Norman Tebbit's late wife, Margaret, fretted about a state dinner at Buckingham Palace because she couldn't properly use cutlery anymore. Uh, she was even more horrified on arrival to find that she had been placed next to Prince Philip, Lord Tebbit recalls. However, the minute the first course arrived, he handed his cutlery to the footman and then ate his entire meal with his fingers. Of course, she could then do the same. Yes, it was planned in advance, but I probably think it was planned by him. Oh, yeah. That's just so, so, so human. human. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> can joke about all the thoughtless comments and the silly quotes and have fun with the Cockney accent and stuff. But I think it it works and it is funny because I think we're all fully aware that the underlying person underneath it all was a decent human being. Yeah. yeah. Guys, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Um, and Charlie, thank you so much for all of this organisation. I feel like we've rounded out a figure that we've, there's been a lot of coverage in the last um few days it's been relentless actually and I just feel like we've uh, done something different which I'm really pleased with so thank you very much we will be back with down the pub when we will be debating the greatest speech in history there's already a fun fight about <laughs> having what for that one so do join us for that even when we're on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.